and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today I'm speaking with Maura Cassidy Burke. I am very excited about this conversation. I think we touched on some really fascinating questions, very broad questions about kind of human knowledge in a much wider multiverse. So the main question that we kind of dance around throughout the episode, and we do hone in on this question towards the end more explicitly, but the question is, how do other beings from other locations in the multiverse experience things like mathematics, logic, the laws of physics? You know, are these things universal? Are they the same for every being in every location in the multiverse? Or are they in some way specific to our address in space or specific even to our psychology, our human heuristics, our scientific theories about you know, how physics works? or our rules about how logical arguments work. You know, these seem intuitive to us. We can make mathematical sense of them. But is this just a feature of our human psychology, or is it something universal? So in this episode, we have, I think, a great discussion about what features and what entities really are universal, and which ones we can kind of attribute to human thought. So the topic is human knowledge, And we're asking, are there any features or entities or processes which are truly universal, which are independent of all culture, language, bias or historical accident? And now this conversation has segments which are both light and heavy. And I confess that the first half of the conversation is a little heavy. It was mostly my fault. I think I dived in very quickly with the kind of meaty, juicy questions about the laws of physics, and about mechanisms, which are an alternative way of talking about what exists instead of laws of nature. But I promise you that in the second half of the conversation, you know, everything gets tied together quite nicely. We get into a more explicit discussion of the multiverse and what it means for other beings to experience the world. So I ask you to stick with the conversation. And I think that by the second half, and certainly by the end, everything will make sense because we really we circle around the same question of human knowledge and what is independent of human knowledge. And that becomes more explicit and more fleshed out as the episode goes on. Mora is a PhD candidate at Utrecht University, working in the philosophy of science. She's also the director of sustainability with the Journal of Trial and Error. Mora was a dream guest. I think you'll agree that she comes across as incredibly smart and well-spoken, And so many of the things she says are highly quotable, whether it's about the work of science or ethics or the links between philosophy and other disciplines, even yoga. And we covered a lot of ground. We talk about her very interesting background, you know, her experiences studying things like photography, philosophy and biomedical science. And we also talk about creative thinking in academic work more generally. I learned a lot from this conversation. Maura has a very clear way of framing things, and much of what she said has stuck with me ever since. So, without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Maura Cassidy Burke. So, I'm very excited to be here today with Maura Burke. Maura, thanks for coming on the podcast. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So, you're sitting here today as a PhD student in philosophy of science. 
And I'm wondering if you have a more precise topic yet for your program, or is there still kind of lots of scope to explore whatever interests you? Yeah, it's it's broad. Uh, ostensibly, I'm supposed to be working on a vague metaphysical picture that I started developing in my master's degree, as well as trying to provide a sort of a philosophical foundation for open science, if that can be done. But the specific ways in which I am going to accomplish all of this are yet to be seen. Sounds ambitious, definitely. And how about, kind of tell me more about your past education, like the topics that brought you to your, your current PhD position? Yeah, so I think I really did have like a, a true interdisciplinary and winding path through academia. For my bachelor's degree, I went to this really small, weird liberal arts college in America called Hampshire College. And I went there originally as a creative photographer. I did uh, like film analog color photography. And that is what I was supposed to do when I got to college. But I had a professor who was an epidemiologist and I took a course with him in my first semester. And I thought, wow, you know, if I'm going to spend all this money to go to school, I think I might want to learn something about science. So I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in molecular genetics, where I did a lot of work on regenerative medicine and kind of some of the technology that's being used nowadays in these mRNA vaccines. And then when it came time for me to decide what was next, I was very lost. I, I didn't want to be a scientist, but uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a lawyer. Maybe I'll be a doctor. And one night I just typed in the words philosophy and science into a Google bar and I hit enter and Utrecht University popped up. I had one week to send out an application and I thought, well, you know, if I can sit and read books and write what I want to say about those books, that sounds like what I want to do. And I met my uh, thesis advisor, Guido Bacigalupi, when I was there and started down the road of philosophy of physics and ontology and epistemology. And I have not strayed from it since. It sounds so serendipitous just typing a Google search one day. And I mean, we'll, we'll touch on contingency later, but I think that's one big advertisement for contingency in life, if that's the path <laughs> that brought you here. Yes, definitely. Uh, and yeah, I think that it really comes across in your writing that you talk about these very different goals of science. So it seems like in your, your biomedical engineering background, you came across a very pragmatic goal for science to mitigate human suffering. And then it's now much later that you fell into the philosophical, metaphysical approach to science, which talks about understanding the nature of reality and discovering fundamental truths. So I'm sure that was, you know, a pretty startling shift of gear when you changed over. I was shocked by it. I really was. Early on in my master's program, I was talking with just another colleague of mine. He was like, oh, so, you know, what What do you think is the goal of science? So, well, yeah, improve life, make people suffer less, eliminate disease. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. The goal of science is to discover the truth of, of the universe. And I thought, no, there's no way. There's no way a large swath of people still think this. But yeah, no, it's uh, I learned that I was incorrect. And there is a, a huge amount of people who are committed to these questions. I think we should kind of focus a lot on your master thesis in this conversation. And I almost feel you know, embarrassed to use the phrase because it, it reads much more like a professional academic book, I have to say. But <laughs> I mean, you. it is. That's, it's the context it was written in. And uh, in this in this thesis, you ask questions about, you get into the metaphysical questions about understanding reality, discerning the nature of our world. Uh, and I think there's a really interesting 
there's a really interesting symmetry, I think, between questions about human activity and questions about the ontological structure of the world. And this is a way that I've been thinking for a very long time. It's, it's why I was drawn to history and philosophy of science as well. And there's some interesting views I want to mention here because uh, I think they might be relevant. So uh, Brian Cantwell-Smith talks about a position called symmetrical realism. And he says that we have to have kind of deference to human activity and deference to the world. There's kind of this this reconciliation between constructivism and realism. And Bruno Latour is also someone who talks about this reconciliation with climate science. So no, Latour is someone very famous for talking about the, the human end of science. You know, science is produced by human actors and non-human actors in these networks. And yet he says, you know, but we can still have deference to the regularities, especially when it comes to climate science. He's, he's here to defend climate science, even though these facts are produced by people who have perspectives and flaws. You know, if they're robust and competent networks, they can still, you know, describe the regularities with with accuracy. Uh, so I think I was kind of inspired a lot by this this kind of reconciliation that Smith and Latour, you know, go about a kind of a symmetry. I think this kind of aligns with with some of the things you're going for in this thesis. Yeah, definitely. And I think in general, it's what we as philosophers of science are going to be charged with in this next generation is how do you reconcile some of the desires of a traditionally realist position with the emergence of contextualism and constructivism and trying to find a middle path between the two of them. I know I, I'm turning now to some work done in perspectival realism, and that is the center, the, the primary goal of that program is just how do we find something that appeals to these realist notions of admitting the existence of a world that exists separately from us, but then also permitting these constructivist notions that admits that our knowledge of that world is necessarily constructed by agents who might have opinions about meanings and desires and intentions and and evolutionarily contingent aspects of your cognitive functioning that makes you view the world in a way that maybe it's not how it is out there in existence. So yeah, I, I agree fully. I don't really know much about Latour. He's not someone who I've engaged with much in my education, but uh, it sounds like something I would be amenable to. And it's great to read some of your statements. I think I think you might lean a bit more towards the human activity side of the spectrum because you, you say, and I'm quoting you to yourself here, uh, I guess I am not a realist. At first, I considered endorsing the social constructivist movement. I recognize that science is a human process. However, you know, it appears that we do track natural regularities. It appears we were able to intervene, giving us satellites, penicillin, bullet trains, robots. So we must be, quote, mapping onto some kind of really existing structure. Uh, so I love to hear that you're kind of, you are drawn towards the human activity side, but at the same time, you're drawn back to the idea that the, the world is persistent and that, you know, that we must be mapping onto something outside of our minds, outside of our perspectives to make sense of, of what we're achieving in the first place. I mean, this is the center of a thing that I really struggle with in my own thought and just in the existing literature. We use these terms a lot, like approximate truth and mapping onto reality or capturing some aspect of reality. And these these phrases are things that I really struggle to understand the meaning of, particularly approximate truth. So it's it's I, I am in conflict in myself of of where I really fall in the debate. And it's not really something that I'm concerned about realizing. So it's just for me, the muddling through process is is the process of doing this sort of philosophical work. So I think that is kind of also seeks to my motivations since I was never someone who was super concerned with arriving at 
an understanding of reality or the truth of the universe, I'm much more happy to just kind of bumble around and say, oh, well, this, I like this, I'm interested in this, I want to read this, as opposed to being concerned about arriving at any sort of answer one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about Wesley Salmon's three categories of explanation, which I think are useful for kind of, of defining the goal of certain explanations. So Wesley says we have kind of three strategies, the epistemic, the modal and the ontic. And the epistemic is kind of the one that relates to human activity. It says that, in his words, take scientific explanations to be arguments. So these are the explanations based arising from human knowledge and activity. And then there's the modal conception, which says it's about kind of necessity and contingency, the things that did happen had to happen, or why the things have happened have to happen as opposed to things that didn't. The very tricky idea of possibilities versus actualities. And then the third one is the ontic conception, which kind of is more of an appeal to regularities outside of our minds and says that, you know, we're explaining things in terms of natural patterns or regularities. And I think we can, you know, this can be usefully applied to the, the topic of reconciling. So if we're reconciling deference to human activity and deference to the world, I think it's also reconciling two different strategies. There's the epistemic strategy and the ontic strategy. I've always viewed this virtuous circularity between the two. And I think that's what Latour is trying to say that, you know, when we have a robust and competent human network, you know, robust and competent epistemology, we can also be applying an ontological strategy. We can also be appealing to descriptions of mind independent regularities. So I really see an overlap and a feedback loop between the epistemic and the ontic. I agree. I So in, in my thesis, I talk about these, these three forms of explanation, but what I end with is that I, I don't personally understand the concept of an ontic explanation. For me, an explanation necessarily is something that is linguistic or representational. So it's semantic content and it is fully informed by the specific cognitive features that we have as human beings. I, I think I quote someone, maybe a Larry or Bechtel and Wright, who say that this distinction of an ontic explanation can only be understood as metonomical. And I think I agree with that. I I don't see a way in which ontic explanations could be anything except for an epistemic explanation just called something else. So in that sense, I, I would agree that there is this inherent circularity. And it's something I've been thinking about in a lot of the topics that I'm dealing with right now, specifically with explanation, because that is kind of what I've specialized in. I'm, I'm more interested in the epistemology. How do we go about making things intelligible to ourselves? not really what is there to make intelligible, but how do we do it? And in that, there's always some sense where your cart and your horse get mixed matched and, and you're not sure which one is leading what. Like in the conversation of laws and regularities, you know, does the law precede the regularity? Well, of course, there has to be some sort of regularity with which we describe why we were motivated to invent a law with which to describe it. But then are we saying that the law then explains why the regularity has its regular nature and you end up in this circular loop. So I find myself more and more, the deeper I start thinking about these things, I find myself in these kinds of in, inextractable feedback loops. Yeah, I love that analogy of the cart and the horse, which one's leading which. I think it's so true. And I've actually been thinking about these feedback loops for like two years. And it's one of the first things I read when I started my master's and it's just been in my mind ever since. And I actually have a pretty hot take about how feedback loops can explain induction and the scientific method and knowledge. So I'll sketch it out for you, I think, because I think I think it's relevant. Yes. 
So it started off, of course, with induction, because I think that was the first feedback loop that struck me. So with induction, there's this circularity between laws and instances. They seem to co-define and reinforce each other. And then also with the scientific method itself, there's this circularity. I mean, this is a kind of almost like a, a schoolyard question about data and hypothesis, which comes first, data or hypothesis? Well, it's a chicken and egg question. You know, scientists don't look for data in the absence of a hypothesis. And, you know, without a hypothesis, they don't know which data to look for. So again, there's a circularity that codifying each other. And then, you know, I, I kept stumbling into more examples. So Ian Hacking has this definition of experimental realism. And he says there's this circularity between presupposition and corroboration. So a theory presupposes some entities, like it says electrons exist, and then you apply the theory in an experiment and a positive result, or I mean, that's also a, a, a hard thing to define, but the outcome of the experiment corroborates the presupposition. And it's only that that kind of feeds back into more information to refine your kind of presuppositions, the entities you're talking about. So for me, all this points towards a kind of a sensible and pragmatic way to think about induction, that we have these presuppositions that are then corroborated, which lead to more, more refined presuppositions and more corroboration through experience. And so knowledge seems to grow out of this positive feedback loop. And that's my last hot take about the nature of knowledge, that it is this epistemic and ontic cart and horse wrapped into each other, that we have both in the kind of a virtuous circularity, which is Nelson Goodman's term. And of course, this is all an anti-foundationalist conception of knowledge because there's no foundation. And some philosophers want to say that circularity is vicious. But I really think that, you know, I, I was shocked at how many of these phenomena appeared to be following these feedback loops. And I think it can be a pretty virtuous thing. I think it's just the, the nature of some things is that they're wrapped up with each other, they're recursive, and there's no foundation. And that's fine. <laughs> I agree. I don't, I don't even consider this a hot take. This, okay. <laughs> for me, it's just kind of, yeah, how you naturally would, what you would naturally arrive at if you gave up the desire to have an ultimate foundation for some kind of knowledge base. And it is that co-creation kind of thing, I think is something that will be moving towards both as a philosophical and a scientific community as we kind of shed these last restraints of Newtonianism and, and Cartesianism and we start to really embrace what the new physics of the day is. Yeah, and it's just, you dissolve the problems. The problems become non-problems. When you stop looking for foundations, in epistemology or in metaphysics, you kind of embrace the circularity. I guess I've always kind of been on the outside realm of academia. You know, it doesn't really define my life. I have so many interests outside of it. Most of my friends are non-academic. So the only arguments I really know about are the ones that I either really dislike and I'm trying to take them down or the ones that I really, really, really like. and. So I, did, I never really had like that coming of age story through philosophy where I, I fumbled around trying to find myself or something. I just kind of arrived. I was a, a grown up. I already had ideas about the way that the world was. And a lot of that was informed by, I think, growing up in an American pragmatist tradition of just the kind of philosophical ether that you move through. And then also, as we touched upon my biological upbringing that was so problem oriented and that's still the same ethos I carry into my philosophy today it's like if arriving at a foundational explanation of how knowledge is generated is going to be practically useful that I'm interested in it if it's not going to be practically useful then I, it's just not something that I commit my time to 
Yeah, I love to hear people's backstories. And I think the pragmatism definitely shows through. And I'm curious about the other dimension, because obviously you you came to the Hampshire College with uh, an arts focus and photography focus. Have you found that the arts and creativity has been an influence on the way you think about knowledge making? I think probably fundamentally. I mean, I, I've come from when I was young to when I'm now. I hated everything that I do now. When I was a high school student, you know, American high school student between the ages of 14 and 16, I hated science. I hated math. I thought it was all stuffy stuff or stuffy people. I only cared about freedom of expression and freedom to create and be a rebel. And then when I became a scientist, I found, wow, actually, this is some of the most creative work I've ever done in my life, you know, just plucking stuff out of existence in the world. I mean, what is more creative than that. And then when I was a scientist at the time, I hated philosophy. I didn't see any point for thinking about these grandiose ideas. I took one philosophy course when I was in college on relativism, and I did nothing for the whole course. I was a really bad student because I hated it. So I asked my professor, could I just write a paper on why I hate philosophy for my final paper? And can we grade it on that? And he said, yeah, okay, sure, sure, more, whatever, just get out of my class. And now here I stand and now, you know, all of that, all of that has fallen to the the wayside. But I do think my main desire as a human being, maybe less now as I'm getting a little bit older, has to be freed from any kind of restraints on what I think or what I want to do or who I want to be. So I think that is probably what informs my writing or my thinking the most. I'm just really, really, really uninterested in anyone trying to or not people trying to do something, but responding to things that make me feel like I'm boxed in in the way that I'm allowed to think about stuff. I really am kind of repulsed by that. So I don't know if that's creative or if rebellious, but I, I think that that's what informs my thinking most primarily. And now let's turn to the mechanisms, because that's a main topic in your thesis. And so in your thesis, you, you, you kind of start with the history and say that mechanisms first came about as explanations in the life sciences, but they've now grown to be a more robust field of study. And one of the main debates is whether they should be seen as ontic or epistemic. And we've already said that we should be breaking down these barriers to see the loops. So one of your approaches, is, of course, is to talk about mechanisms in a context that's both epistemic and ontic. And you have this other, this kind of dualistic definition of mechanisms as entities and activities. So the definition is that mechanisms are entities and activities organized in some way responsible for producing some observed phenomena. So talk a bit about the kind of dualistic definition there that talks about both entities and activities. So mechanical philosophy is something that we're really familiar with. It's it's what we have inherited from the 17th century. Um, but this mechanical philosophy is, is different. It tries to kind of synthesize the predominant Aristotelian substance-based ontologies that we're very familiar with, with the sort of process-based ontologies that gained some prominence in the 1980s where you kind of reject the existence of, of entities as a, as, a, as a concept, as a category. And this tries to walk a path between the two. So I guess, once again, a rather pragmatic approach to thinking. And as I see it, it is just the way in which the world works. There are things that we can identify. And whether that 
remains true when you go down to the level of a quantum spin foam, I'm not sure, but at least in most of our day-to-day dealings and even most of our scientific dealings, we can observe spatio-temporally localized entities that persist with some amount of regularity. And we can also identify that these entities are constantly involved in processes or in activities with other entities or through a a structure or organization. And through those interactions that entities have with other entities and the activities that the entities go through themselves, you have phenomena, regularly occurring phenomena, which we observe. And then we want to figure out how it is that this phenomena arises. So I understand mechanisms both dually in that aspect, that you have entities and activities, and then also mechanisms as themselves and mechanistic explanations, which is kind of how I tried to circumvent this problem of epistemic versus ontological, although it is essentially the argument without saying the words. Mm-hmm. And I, so I know, I know you have Jean Ismail coming on soon. And I used a paper of hers in my thesis where she says something along the lines of, you know, I now believe that mechanisms are the fundamental way that nature is. And in a sense, I I also feel similarly, but I couch it a little bit more in the language of a mechanistic explanation in the sense that for people like us, for agents like us who have the cognition that we have, the only way that we've ever gone about making things known to us was by identifying things that persist and then identifying the sorts of things that those entities do. So in some sense, the mechanistic literature is just a modern way to talk about uh, substances and, uh, oh, I don't even know the old archaic word for it, intentions, I guess, something about intentionality, essences. Yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but but yeah, that's, that's what we'll start with. Yeah, it's great. And I love that kind of that question. Well, just to to guide the listeners slightly, the question is what exists and the kind of two broad answers would be substances as in entities or things or processes or activities, things kind of happening or taking place. And mechanisms are kind of answer the question by saying, well, there are both substances and processes. There's kind of stuff doing things. So it's kind of they codefine each other. And yet at the same time, you also talk about the asymmetry in this dualism. So if we're getting more complicated now, <laughs> but while there are both entities and activities, it's kind of skewed because the activities are more fundamental. They're kind of privileged. So how does that kind of work? Yeah. So I, I would never use the language of fundamentality or, or privilege, mm-hmm. but I think what I say is that activities activities are what gives productive value to entities. So if you just had static entities, I don't even believe that you could, you know, because then you would just say that something came from nothing. It just existed. Obviously, a process has to be in place for things to come into existence and for any type of change, any type of entropic change, any kind of state transition, any sort of decoherence or coherence events. These are all processes. So in that sense, there is a, a sense in which processes are what is actually productive in this duality. It's just that we don't want to lose the option of speaking of entities as fundamental objects. And as of yet, I I am now trying to turn to applying this conception, this mechanistic conception to topics in like loop quantum gravity, and then the question of whether or not you can maintain both of them all the way down, if it's just mechanisms, 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 
I don't know. We'll see. Keep in, keep in touch. If we want to be able to explain it, if we want to make it intelligible, if I want to have a good grasp on the hows of the questions, not the whys, but the hows, we're always going to need entities and activities together to, to make that intelligible to ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think that really makes it a robust you know, alternative as, as an explanation. And let's briefly segue to talk about laws of nature, because I know that mechanisms are kind of the alternative to the older laws of nature approach to explaining what exists. And so the, the concept with laws is that there's some idea of necessity or a lack of contingency. And you give the example of John Beatty, who talks about evolutionary contingency theory. And his argument is that biology can't produce laws because in biology, there isn't the same necessity that happens in physics. So, you know, evolution is a, is a contingent process. All biological entities you know, evolve and arise contingently. And therefore, there is no necessity as such as there is in physics that gives rise to the laws of nature that we describe in physics. So that's his argument that kind of with biology, we can't apply laws of nature, which is why mechanisms enter as as a, a strong contender for an explanation. And you also talk about, very interestingly, the theological influence on scientific laws when they developed. So, you know, when, when science was emerging, as we know it in the 17th, 18th century, at this time, Christianity was influential. And there's the idea that maybe science accepted and incorporated this theological idea that the universe is, you know, intelligible and orderly and created on the basis of laws. So laws of nature, even though they're scientific, somehow accept this theological aspect. And there is this alternative conception that, you know, science can reject God and that these law-like, orderly, you know, laws of nature are a way to explain the universe without God. But either way, you say that, you know, the the concept of scientific laws emerged out of this discourse with Christianity. And I always loved to think about these kind of crossovers with, you know, theology and science. So how do you think about this, these kind of links? Yeah, absolutely. So laws, laws is how I kind of started this thinking about this. Because I've always really struggled with the concept of them. They seem to be something like, uh, like, you know, that infamous explanation or definition that's given of child pornography, which is, you know, I can't explain, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And that's always how laws have kind of seemed to me. They're inevitable, which is why I arrived at this negative definition of a law from, from John Beattie, not what it is, but what laws aren't. One of the most clarifying examples of what is supposed to be entailed by a law, and it is very much, as you said, this necessity, it cannot be contingent. It has always been this way. It will always be this way. For any possible world that's similar to ours, it will be that way. And I do think, as you mentioned, that at least in some extent, in, in our cognitive functioning, in our heuristic or in our imaginative models, I think this dependence on necessity is emerging through either a positive or negative dialogue with theology. If you have a positive dialogue, you know, you're someone who feels that you want to be in line with theological thought for whatever reason, then you say, oh, okay, well, I'm just trying to describe the rules that are written in the book of God. And if you're responding negatively to theology, then you say, no, I'm going to supplant this. I'm going to give you an alternative to arriving at this sort of really clear and really understandable worldview. And I think that we see a lot of this in the work of Newton and Descartes, who kind of provided us with the conceptual categories that we still use to to make sense 
of the world. And I hope it's something that we kind of start to move away from. I think maybe one of the reasons why I've always been so willing to engage or or so skeptical of the concept of laws is because I was never raised with religion. I never had to reject it. I never had to accept it. It just was separate from me. So I this concept of there being order, that necessarily there was order to the world and necessarily there was creation to be understood, that you could ask why questions and that you could get sensible answers from them was something that was just never really incorporated into my worldview. And I did see when I started writing about laws, a lot of these conceptual similarities between, you know, the book of God and the book of nature that we have subsumed and carried with us for centuries now. And I mean, even there's the famous quote of Einstein of, you know, God doesn't play dice with the universe or whatever. And we know that this is a heuristic. We know he's not making a literal claim about the existence of God, but it is guiding our imaginative processes to think of the universe such that it would be made with intention, that it would be made with order, and that we are then free to step into it, define it, ascribe laws to it, and we will have complete knowledge of it, which might be something that is actually beyond our grasp and is not something that is entailed or that is allowed of humans. And we we should be willing to accept that. Yeah, and it's great you talk about your upbringing as separate to, to religion. I had a different experience. My upbringing was wrapped up in religion and I've talked about it on the podcast before because of the cultural heritage of Ireland. And we're, we're getting away from that very rapidly. But it's great to reflect upon because I was in the position to reject religion. And yet I still have this, this idea that there is necessarily order. I am a, a strong realist uh, about you know the claims of science. And so you know, I've, I've rejected theology ostensibly in my mind, but have I also, have I really rejected it at the deeper level if I'm still looking for these global regularities? Is, is this a hang up? And I've been asking myself this question because I, you know, I'm kind of aimed at maybe global metaphysics. I mean, this podcast extrapolator is aimed at extrapolating from empirical work to, you know, more local claims, but also global claims about what reality is, you know, for all beings independently of any position or space or time. You know, I'm motivated by the idea that there is a global metaphysical structure. And, you know, am I being religious or dogmatic to aim for this, this kind of global metaphysics? Uh, I know Nancy Cartwright is someone who talks about, you know, she's against global structures. She talks about the dappled world, which is just local in particular. And again, Brian Cadwell Smith, he rejects, he rejects a monist truth. And he talks about metaphysics that is pluralist and local. Mm-hmm. So... I'm kind of I'm torn around this question as to whether I'm justified in pursuing global metaphysics or whether I'm just being dogmatic like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. I have a theory. If I was a sociologist, I would conduct some sort of sociological research into the relationship that different thinkers in philosophy have to religion. And my my hypothesis would be that those who have grown up in dialogue with religion are more likely to take hard positions on one side or the other. But this there's just a pet theory of mine. But to bring back to what I said earlier, I think ultimately, if you are motivated to understand the world in such a way, and it brings you joy, and it brings you pleasure, then that is what you should do. And if you're thinking, you find, oh, well, actually, yeah, I feel like I'm being dogmatic. Maybe I should reevaluate those things. Then you go along that route. Mm-hmm. But there's certainly nothing wrong with people who want to arrive at that sort of ontological understanding. I think it's wrong, 
But if it's something that's pleasurable, of course, you're going to produce knowledge, you're going to produce good things for other people to work with. And that's just kind of how I approach philosophy as a discipline. You know, it is ultimately people following what feels right and trying to gather evidence, trying to produce good arguments in support of their intuition of what they feel is right. My intuition is that, yeah, things are much more local and much more contingent than we have thought beforehand, but I'm, I'm super willing and even happy to be wrong about it. <laughs> and I think I am always being drawn back towards the, the local and the particular, so, and the perspectives, of course. So I'm, I'm learning to take these things into account. And that goes back to perspectival realism, you know, reconciling the two. Yeah, definitely. And pluralism. I mean, epistemic pluralism was kind of the like forefather, in a sense, to perspectival realism, which is a, a epistemic pluralism is something I touch on briefly in, in the writing of my thesis. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me, even just on a very basic world level, an earth level. We can't even agree as one species on what numbers mean, on how you can categorize multiple elements so if I was to then extrapolate from the Earth to our solar system or to our universe or to a multiverse of creatures that could have cloud-like constructions where they have no sense of delineation or hard lines between objects, what would they make of the world? What math would they make? You know, it's so for me, I'm just always I, I'm drawn to this this pluralism in a really, really fundamental way. And I think it'll be helpful for us as well to be able to hold even internally inconsistent ideas and not have to run away from them, but approach them and enter into dialogue with them and then see what emerges from that. And that's a great segue to the topic of the multiverse, which was <laughs> coming up very soon on my list. Uh, and I love these questions about, because uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of sci-fi and I think it gives rise to these questions quite easily. What are numbers like for cloud-like beings? And I used to wonder about these things as a teenager. You know, what if there's a planet where logic, where the logic doesn't hold or where, you know, things seem to follow intuitively according to a different process? So is logic really a universal way of reasoning or is it just this kind of heuristic, uh, a feature of human psychology? And uh, you talk about the multiverse briefly in your thesis. And I think uh, Max Tegmark is a great person to turn to here. I've listened to him speak on Sam Harris's podcast and on Sean Carroll's podcast. And I found his ideas fascinating. So we've been talking about laws and how, you know, laws and physics are supposed to be necessary. They're not supposed to be contingent. But Max Tegmark challenges even this idea by saying that, well, you know, if we do live in a, in a mathematical universe and if we do live in a, in a multiverse, well, then even the numbers that we take to be fundamental are just particular to our address in space, as he puts it. Mm -hmm. So there's numbers, he calls them the pure numbers, like 1836 is the difference in mass between the proton and the electron, which to us seems completely fundamental. I mean, it's written into the code of reality as far as we're concerned. But he says, well, this is just part of our address in space, our particular universe in the much greater multiverse. And in this multiverse, you know, every possible uh, variation of this number of this relation between the mass of the proton and electron is instantiated. So, you know, even physics itself is contingent. And this kind of this challenges the notion of scientific laws to the core. Yeah, so I, I like multiverse theories a lot. I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about cosmology and I'm, I'm reviewing a multiverse book right now that's going out for publication soon. So I'm really immersed in thinking about multiverses right now. And while ultimately 
you know, it's polarizing one way or the other if you think multiverse theories are scientific or if they're unscientific. But what they are certainly are thought experiments where you can probe, like you said, the, the understanding of logic, if that's applicable everywhere. And when I first heard Techmark refer to these dimensionless numbers as part of our address, something really like dinged inside of me. It was like, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense because he was just talking about it in a sort of like the evolution of our knowledge way where we have evidence now that some of these numbers that we thought to be ultimately consistent are ending up actually to be variable. So why are we going to constrain ourselves to a mode of thinking that doesn't permit this sort of thought, even if it means ultimately that as we devise more uh, precise and deeper probing technologies that let us get down to the Planck scale and let us reach beyond the horizon that we have right now in our universe and we find nothing, why would we preemptively decide that that is an impossibility? Why would we not let, why would we not set our imagination up to assume that, listen, things look very consistent around here. That doesn't mean that they're consistent everywhere. That just means that we have localized consistency and other places might also have localized consistency which isn't the same as our own localized consistency. And I speak about one kind, almost tongue-in-cheek multiverse theory, which is Smolin's theory of uh, the evolving universe. And he's someone who also went to my same weird undergraduate institution, Hampshire College, where they really like encourage us to be very weird thinkers in, in the most loving way. And he proposes this idea of you know, if we're going to, if we're, if we're people who think with intentionality and we think about the universe and we are pretty confident that it's going to end up in a place of heat death, we're going to get a big black hole. Maybe it's the case that universes want to make black holes. They want to be in a position where these dimensionless values assume the right numbers so that we can create stable galaxies and we can have complex chemistry forming so that we can get enough mass accrued so that we can get more and more and more universes. In which case, at the end of every one of these heat deaths, we get a new universe. We get new numbers. You know, we might be one in many. And I think now people are getting more and more willing to kind of scientifically address the question of like what happened at the Big Bang, what happened before the Big Bang, what happens on the other side of these event horizons of black holes. And with that becomes more and more willingness to acknowledge that what is happening is a real crumpling of our understanding of this consistency. And in order to understand these boundary cases. We might really have to move away from our assumptions of necessity and the never-changing status of these laws and these dimensionless values. Yeah, it's really mind-blowing. And unfortunately, I don't have the mathematics to even evaluate these claims. As you say, for me, they're thought experiments, but they're almost like they're just science fiction narratives to me because I can't parse them in terms of their mathematical salience. Uh, but it certainly challenges the idea of laws and perhaps points towards mechanisms as the alternative way of explaining things if we are only working with contingency and not necessity, even at the level of physics. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's place for laws. You know, there are, there's this idea of pragmatic laws introduced by Mitchell, I think. And that does, in a sense, kind of move away from these really, really, really hard, like, DN explanations about laws where everything has to be this way and laws are a literal explanation of what's going on, where it's kind of like, well, laws are very useful. It's nice to be able to refer to something and know that that is a standard metric that you can use in your thoughts and your experimentation. And I think I'm totally open to that. I think that there's, why wouldn't there be a way where in which we can 
have both mechanisms and we can have some sense of law. And when one is more useful than the other, then we use the one that's most useful for that circumstance. I just think that that is the way that my my thinking lends to is just what is the best to use right now if you're trying to if you're just doing something, if you're understanding water viscosity, use some laws. They're going to be very, very, very helpful for you. But if you're trying to understand the entire constituent nature of the universe that extends beyond our event horizon, you might want to take a couple steps back from holding too strongly to your laws because we have less credence to believe that they're applicable in those situations. But to, to say that, I do also want to support mechanisms purely for their heuristic and imaginative value. I think that they are helpful in thinking about these harder questions because they do just give you more freedom to think. Now I'd like to move to talk about the agent-dependent view, which is a position you develop in your thesis, uh, a very interesting and promising position, and one that I think appeals to me a lot because it talks about perspectives mattering. So we've been talking a lot about, you know, how different beings experience the world and working out kind of what features of science or what features of human uh, knowledge making are just, you know, features of our own psychology and heuristic. The whole point of this is that the, the agent matters. So the agent who's undertaking the scientific activity kind of has to be taken into account. So the claim that observers, you know, humans are not neutral. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways I think about these these days. I think so the, the way that I first started developing when I was writing my thesis, I kind of used a case study in causality to bring up the idea that, well, you know, our conceptual categories are not neutral. The fact that we like to break up the world in these really, really neat causal chains has a great practical explanation behind it. You know, we have to make decisions. We have to decide between walking left or right, walking towards danger or walking away from danger just to ensure our survival. And I think what we've seen as our physics has gotten more nuanced is that it's getting really, really difficult to come up with a good explanation for how causality works outside of the minds of the people who are identifying the causal chains. So that's where I kind of started to develop this position of agents really mattering. And I think in a sense, it's always a little dangerous in our current climate to walk down these lines because there is so much fear of kind of like these new age explanations of quantum collapse and consciousness and, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I, I will tread carefully. But what I will say is that ultimately the knowledge that you have of anything is mediated by your cognition. And your cognition, as John Beattie argues, is contingent. It, it evolved through time and through random information, and it has gotten more detailed, and it has figured out that it's actually much more useful to us to not have all of the information that's available to us, to get rid of some, to come up with stories in our brain about how tables exist, how solids exist, how time persists. And our physics is just getting better and better and better at showing us that these cognitive categories don't really, in a sense, as we said earlier, map on to the external reality in a way that is meaningful. So I think as we move forward and as we move away from this, the mechanics of Newton, where the observer was this independent kind of 
machine who was completely separate from the experiments. You know, there weren't two systems coming into contact with one another. It was a system being analyzed by something that had no relationship to the system. And I think as we move away from that, these agent-based explanations and these agent-based understandings are going to become a little bit more popular. And you can see it already in just Google searches of, of agent-based conceptions of a variety of different things. So that the word is just gathering momentum because people are feeling, yeah, well, you know, I, I am in contact with my surroundings. If I'm making an experiment, I'm in contact with it. My intentions are going to come through to it. My feelings when I'm writing a paper are going to change what I'm reporting on. And then you can bring it all the way up to the deep metaphysical level of thinking, well, I, I am involved in a co-creation process of my world. And that's largely driven by things that have nothing to do with physics. They have things to do with my cognition and my propensities and my desires. And I think that there's nothing wrong with bringing those into conversation with one another after so long of having them out of conversation with one another. Yeah. And all this talk of agent based and, you know, the so it's not just the observer who's passively sitting by, the agent intervenes and manipulates. And this again draws back to the idea of feedback loops, you know, that the agent is embedded in the process. And again, the, the outputs and the inputs are cart and horse wrapped up with each other. So it seems like we're just hovering around feedback loops endlessly in all the topics we touch on today. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree fundamentally. So my mother is a yogi, you know, to give more background. Mm. She She's also a school teacher and she's a painter and you know, she's very creative, but she spent uh, the latter part of her life since she retired studying yoga and studying the scriptures of yoga. And we talk about very, very, very similar things with the most different vocabulary that you could possibly have. And when I was talking to her about my understanding of agents and how we go about probing the world and then affecting the world and then describing the world as if we're not involved with it. She was the one who uh, said, oh, yeah, well, what you're describing is just the process of co-creation. It's, it's what the yogis have known for thousands of years, ever since these scriptures were written. And I, I just I, I like these synchronicities between different modes of thoughts. And as we start adopting new vocabularies and we start permitting ourselves to probe a little bit further and a little bit deeper, seeing where these things register with one another and being able to kind of cross these bridges is the foundations of epistemic pluralism. And that is why after I talk about these agents in my thesis, I come back to epistemic pluralism because fundamentally what the agent-based understanding permits you to do and what epistemic pluralism permits you to do and what perspectival truth permits you to do is find the context in which the words being used to explain phenomena make sense. And then once you can understand those words, how they're being applied in their different contexts, you can see that they bridge over to one another very, very frequently and very, very neatly. It's just a matter of making sense of what the words are supposed to mean in each context. So in a sense, I guess I'm making a big appeal to Wittgenstein here. And again, I love these crossovers between different spheres of knowledge making, knowledge about the world. I think that yeah, different vocabularies describe the same phenomena in very different ways. And there are greater implications to this idea that agents matter, which you, at the very end, you trace outwards to the broader implications, the ethical implications of this agent-dependent view. You know, if the agent matters, if the agent's wrapped up in the process, and if propensities and desires are really that important, all of this is just to say that the agent's relevant, that the human must be taken into account. You know, psychology, physiology, goals, and every aspect of their personhood. And this is kind of 
a tentative but, you know, robust ethical implication that, as you say, the human condition is wrapped up in what we're doing at, at the bottom here. And you consider these different motivations for doing science at the very end. You say it's the quest for truth or the quest for professional success or the quest for improving the human condition. And maybe all of this should remind us that you know, we as humans, as agents, are wrapped up in the process and we should pay pretty close attention to the features of human psychology that give rise to scientific knowledge, but also the needs of human beings that we're recursively aiming towards at the end of the day. And I like your one of your quotes here. So here again, quoting you to you. Uh, I'm actually really, really confident that we need to become actively involved in establishing an enterprise that vastly prioritizes the improvement of the human condition far and above the quest for truths or desire for success. So I love this meta goal. It's such a nice way to wrap up to say, you know, we have to look back to the human condition. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like my quote of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say anything as eloquent as I was able to say in writing. But yeah, I think, so I, I wrote my thesis in a really uh, tumultuous year. It was 2020 that I was finishing writing. And when I wrote this last section and on the day that I was sitting down to reflect on Feyerabend and his distinction or the distinction that he identifies that we make kind of fallaciously between rationality and any other feeling it was the day that a, a new spaceship got launched into the air and also a day when the race riots broke out in America. So I was really faced with this like glaring example of how the quest for knowledge and the quest for truth and the quest to explore what is beyond our domain is not neutral at all. And the motivations are not neutral and the attention that we give to it is not neutral. And the more time and energy we spend to prioritizing these, these questions about truth and what is out there, well, I, I don't blame the individual for being interested in them. But when we think about creating a community, a global community and how we spend our time and our money and our minds, I think that, yeah, I really do believe fundamentally that we have to be involved in the business of creating an enterprise that's primarily concerned with humans and our condition and our problems. And maybe if we can get some of that sorted out, we'll have a little bit more time for the fun stuff about truth and, and what exists. Because I think also fun is what a lot of people are looking for in science. And it should be fun. But we should also be concerned with how we can help the people in our very, very, very large community, which is a globe now. And that if, if philosophy can help get us there, if we can start developing a philosophical understanding of the world, which prioritizes the human condition, I think that that is what I ultimately am after. Well, I think it's a great place to end. We've gone far away to the multiverse and all the way back to human beings on Earth. So I think we've covered a nice amount of ground. So more thanks so much for joining me today and all the best with the uh, upcoming PhD program. Thank you. It was really fun to be here. Thank you for having me. Extrapolator is produced and edited by me, Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast. It's just me. And I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. And please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram, at ExtrapolatorPod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, 
and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.